Good morning. My name is Christy Davis. I'm on the teaching team. How was week one? Week two? <laughs> Good. This summer, my family, consisting of me, my husband, my nine-year-old daughter, five-year-old son, and three-year-old son, drove 16 hours to Hilton Head, South Carolina for a big family vacation. Yeah, this was a trip we planned months in advance. And like any trip, any um, journey, it required practical preparation. We had planning, all sorts of things before we got on the road. There was purpose behind every single thing that we packed, where we placed it in our suitcases or in the van, the snacks, how much water we brought or did not bring, everything even down to the seating arrangement. Because we were traveling to a specific place for a specific purpose. And all our planning and organizing and arranging and it was all oriented to getting us to that place for that purpose and as seamlessly as possible. As we enter the book of Numbers, we need to keep in mind that like my family, the Israelites were setting off on a journey. They were headed to a specific place for a specific purpose. Abraham and his family had lived as nomads in the land of promise, and then they lived hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt. But God had promised them a land of their own. They were headed to a divine destination. Now, the Israelites' journey would be much longer than my family's journey, and the purpose behind it much more significant. But many of the concepts are still sort of the same, because any journey requires practical preparation. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that maybe this wasn't your favorite section of scripture to read and study. Uh, in a section of scripture like this, it's sort of easy to get lost in all the details. The names, the numbers, the um, so maybe some of you were thinking to yourself, like, why? Why am I reading this? What relevance could this possibly have for me today? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us everything in Scripture is useful for teaching us, correcting us, showing us how to live. The fact that all of these details are in this passage indicates to us that they are, in fact, useful to us. All these details do at least a couple of things for us. The first thing they do is they give us information that's going to be helpful as we study the book of Numbers. So one thing we're going to do this morning is I'm going to look to pull out some of that information that lays a really good foundation for the rest of our study. The other thing that a text like this does for us is it gives us a lot of insight into God and his involvement in the affairs of his people. We get to see, is he a God that just sits back and lets them figure it out on their own? Or is he a God that is intimately involved in all those details? So as we go through the text this morning, I'm also going to 
be intentional about pulling that out, showing us how we see God and what we can assume about how that applies to us. So let's get to it. The first verse of the book of Numbers sets the context. Numbers 1.1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after Israel's departure from the land of Egypt. This first verse makes it pretty clear that we are starting in the middle of a story. It's not like Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. So we're starting in the middle of the story and it references, it reminds us of Israel's grand departure from Egypt. That happened just a little over a year prior to these events. The Israelites are a people rescued. They are a people freed from slavery because in the midst of that slavery, they cried out to God and God moved mightily on their behalf. He forced Pharaoh to let them go. And right before that 10th plague, the death of every firstborn, God told the Israelites to apply the blood of a Passover lamb to the doorposts of their houses, and if they did, they would be spared physical death. And they were. The Israelites were only able to depart from Egypt because God moved on their behalf. And when they departed from Egypt, they followed God to the base of Mount Sinai. And a couple of things happened at Mount Sinai. First, they entered into a covenant with God. That covenant is commonly referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, after Moses. At its most basic level, the Mosaic Covenant is where the people of Israel agreed to be God's people and for God to be their God. And as part of that agreement, they adopted God's laws as the laws that would govern their nation. They essentially became a theocracy, a nation ruled by God. Much of the second half of Exodus and almost all of the book of Leviticus give us lots of details about this legal code that the Israelites freely entered into. And like any legal code, I mean, think of our own legal code. It includes a bunch of things we must do, pay our taxes, and a bunch of things we are not allowed to do. And what would happen if we broke any of those laws? That's the exact same thing with the Israelites. So the first thing that happened at Mount Sinai was the Israelites received from God instructions for how they were to live as a nation that had God as their ruler. The other thing that happened, and this took months, was they constructed the tabernacle. After receiving very detailed instructions from God on every single aspect of every single thing included in the tabernacle and consecrating the priesthood and all of those things, they did everything exactly the way that God said, and God came and dwelled in the tabernacle. So Numbers 1-1 calls to mind for us what God did for the Israelites, that they are a people saved by God, ruled by God, and now living with God. The Israelites' salvation story teaches us a whole lot 
about the process of salvation for us. Just as the Israelites had to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts of their houses, all people must apply the blood of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, to their lives in order to be saved from death, spiritual death. Just like the Israelites had to actually leave the land of their enslavement, believers must leave our life of slavery to sin. Just like the Israelites entered into a covenant, we enter into a covenant with God. We agree to be God's people and for God to be our God. Just like the Israelites had to learn God's laws and start putting them into practice, we have to learn God's laws and start putting them into practice. Just like God came and dwelt among his people. God dwells among his people today. So you see, that's just a little bit of what we learned when we studied Exodus. So you see, the Israelites' story has a lot to teach us. It's very relevant, very useful to believers today. I'm confident that we are also going to learn a lot from the book of Numbers, because the book of Numbers chronicles the Israelites' journey. The journey was not God's long-term plan for his people. They weren't going to be journeying forever. They had a divine destination, the promised land. They were going there, and they also had a divine destiny. You see, as they willingly put into practice God's laws. As they had God as their ruler, they were going to reflect God to the people and the nations around them. And isn't that true for us too? Because we too are a people on a journey. We too are going to reflect God as we take that journey, as we decide that we are going to put God's laws into practice in our lives, as we are going to follow him as our ruler, we are going to reflect him to those around us, and that is our destiny. A destination, eternity with God, and a journey to get there. So after reminding us in the very first verse of Numbers that we're in the midst of a story, God immediately gives a command. Numbers 1-2. Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of every male one by one. You and Aaron are to register those who are 20 years old or more by their military divisions. Everyone who can serve in Israel's army. A man from each tribe is to be with you. Each one is the head of the ancestral family. These are the names of the men who, to, who are to assist you. And God gave a list of actual men. So verse 17, so Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name, and they assembled the whole community on the first day of the second month. The exact day that God commanded the census, they did it. And verse 19, just as the Lord commanded Moses, he registered them in the wilderness of Sinai. God commanded a census for the purpose of forming Israel's military. If you look closely, at dates throughout this first section of Numbers, you can see that it's not in chronological order. In Numbers 1-1, we're told that God commanded the census on the first day of the second month. 
But when we get to chapter 7, those events occurred one month prior. A very natural question to ask when we see something out of order is, why? And often in Scripture, it is to draw attention to something. So the book of Numbers, opening the way that it does, seems to be emphasizing that the journey ahead for the Israelites was actually going to be a military conquest. The Israelites were headed to the land that God had promised to give them. But they weren't just going to sit back and receive it. They were actually going to have to fight for it. You know, the New Testament uses lots of fighting imagery for our spiritual journey. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession. Ephesians 6.12 tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand. Our journey is going to involve a fight, just like the Israelites' journey was going to involve a fight. Everyone knows that in order to actually win a fight, you have to actually know that you're in it. If you don't know you're in a fight, how do you possibly have a chance? I don't know about you, but I often forget that I'm in the middle of a fight. Like everything starts going, like everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, what, what, what is happening here? Why is everything, why are the wheels falling off of everything? We have a fight in front of us. Now we're not gonna fight that fight like humans tend to fight fights. You can continue on in that Ephesians passage, and you can see how we are called to fight. But we do have a fight, and I think often we need to be reminded that we have a fight. Just like the Israelites needed to be reminded that they were going to have a fight. So Numbers opens with an emphasis on the fact that the Israelites have a fight in front of them. And in order to prepare for that fight, we get a lot of information about how the Israelites are organized. They were organized by ancestral families, by tribes, and by clans. The Israelites are the descendants of Abraham, Abraham's, their, Abraham's, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. So the promise that God gave to Abraham was passed to Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob, who was renamed Israel by God. Now, if you studied Genesis with us, you may remember that Jacob made an arrangement to marry a woman named Rachel. But on his wedding night, he was tricked into marrying her sister, Leah. So he ended up with two wives. And Leah and Rachel were rivals. In their uh, competition to try to produce heirs for Jacob, they also gave him their two servants as concubines. Now, concubine is um, a, 
It only exists in polygamous societies where it's legal for men to have multiple wives. Concubines were legitimate. They weren't mistresses or anything, but they were of a lower status than the wives. So by these four women, Jacob had 12 sons. And the tribes of Israel are named after the sons of Jacob. This was how they were organized. This was how they were organized as a people group, this, and this was how the military was going to be organized. So when God commanded the census, he listed the tribes in a particular order. But it was not the birth order of the sons, which is one way that you might expect to see it. Instead, God listed all of Leah's sons first, then all of Rachel's sons, then the sons of the concubines, and he left out the tribe of Levi. So verse 46 tells us that the number, total number of men, 20 years old or older, who were going to be part of the military was 603,550. If there were 603,000 military men, men 20 years old or older, most scholars think that the total population of Israel would have been somewhere in two to three million. Now, when we look at the census for Numbers 1, we see that two of the original tribes are treated differently. The first is the tribe of Joseph. It was treated differently. In Genesis, we learned that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And he was the one that was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, rose to power in Egypt, and saved the whole family from starvation. So on his deathbed, Jacob bestowed a double blessing on Joseph when he adopted his two sons as his own. It might not be immediately obvious, but what that did was that elevated Joseph, his prominence in the nation of Israel. Instead of his sons being part of one tribe, the tribe of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph was split into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it'll be obvious Joseph got or would get through his sons twice what his brothers got. And that becomes pretty obvious when we get to the land distribution. Because instead of getting one distribution of land, his sons are going to get two distributions of land. They receive twice as much. God also chose to treat the tribe of Levi differently. Verse 47. But the Levites were not registered with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord had told Moses, do not register or take a census of the tribe of Levi with the other Israelites. Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, all its furnishings and everything in it. The Levites were not counted in the military because they were not going to fight in the military. God made them responsible for everything related to the tabernacle, taking care of it, camping around it, moving it, but that's not all. Picking up in verse 51, any unauthorized person who comes near it is to be put to death by the Levites, so that, verse 53, no wrath would fall on the Israelite community. Now, without getting into too much detail, the Levites' assignment was not random. Back in Exodus chapter 32, Right after entering covenant with God, the people got very impatient when Moses was taking all that time up on the mountain. And Aaron made a golden calf, and the people worshipped it. Now the punishment 
for creating a goal, an idol and worshiping it. The punishment that the people had freely just agreed to was death. So Moses says, let's look at Exodus 32, starting in verse 26. Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord, since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. After the golden calf incident, the people had been given an opportunity to say they were for the Lord, and it seems like only the Levites did. And so the Levites were the ones that God had carry out the punishment. They had already proven that they were willing to obey God in this way. And so God gives them and their descendants the task of protecting the tabernacle. God assigned most of the men of Israel to the military, and he, formed a, he assigned a subset to protect the tabernacle. Notice that the Israelites did not pick this arrangement. They, their individual responsibilities were set by events that happened long before they were born. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and their boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from any of us. All people have been sovereignly placed into a story that started long before we did. And how we fit into that body, how we fit into the body of Christ is at least partially dependent on all these details that happened long before. So after organizing the military, God addressed the organization of the camp. Let's pick back up in chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. The Israelites are to camp under their respective banners beside the flags of their ancestral families. They are to camp around the tent of meeting at a distance from it. The entire Israelite camp was oriented around the tent of meeting. It was quite literally right in the middle of the camp. Now God told each tribe exactly where to camp. And he started with the tribe of Judah. We might have expected him to start with the tribe of Reuben, because Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, and God started with the military census by addressing Reuben. But no, God addressed Judah first. When Jacob was on his deathbed, he, two of his sons received the most optimistic prophecies. Joseph, who we just talked about, and Judah. And Judah's had a lot to do with leadership. So God addresses 
Judah first, and he gave them the place of prominence, which would have been to the east. Judah was grouped together with Issachar and Zebulun. All three of these tribes were um, sons or tri tribes of the sons of Leah. So they had a closer-knit relationship. And then God gave um, a place for Reuben in the south, second most prominent place. That, that was the firstborn, along with Simeon and Gad. Now, Reuben and Simeon were sons of Leah, and Gad was the son of Leah's servant. So they also had um, some relationships. On the west side of the tabernacle was, were the tribes of Joseph, and so Ephraim and Manasseh, um, and Benjamin. These were the descendants of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. And then on the north side were the sons of um, the concubines. So the tent of meeting is in the middle. The tribes that form the military are in a, as a perimeter around it, at a distance from it. And in that distance, the space in between the tribes and the tabernacle are the Levites. Just like the order mattered for the tribes, the order mattered for the Levites. Numbers 3.38. Moses, Aaron, and his sons, who performed the duties of the sanctuary as a service on behalf of the Israelites, camped in front of the tabernacle on the east, in front of the, meet, the, meeting toward, the tent of meeting toward the sunrise. So the place of prominence for the Levites was given to Moses, Aaron, his sons, and their families. This is exactly what we would expect. Um, Moses, Aaron, and his sons were part of the Kohathite tribe. So the rest of the Kohathite tribes are in the second most prominent place to the south. And then we have the Gershonites camped be on the west side of the tabernacle, and then the Merorites on the north side. So when we look at the arrangement of the camp, we see pretty clearly that God is the one that arranged it. And that he took into consideration very practical things when he did so. The tent of meeting is in the middle. The Levites who are charged with protecting and transporting the tent of meeting are camps around it. And the tribes that form the military are on the outermost perimeter. And they're grouped together with other tribes that they would have probably had more natural or closer relationships with. You know, the New Testament also emphasizes that God is the one that arranges the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. This placement, the placement of the tribes where they were, the placement of believers in the body of Christ, had me thinking about the placement, the seating arrangement in our van on our trip to Hilton Head. My youngest son, who had to sit in the far back, was well aware that he did not have the seat of prominence. And my daughter, who was positioned between him and the snacks, was also not very uh, happy about that. But I can assure you 
that I love all my kids the same. I did not give the seating arrangement based on who I loved more. No, but we're trying to get to a specific place as seamlessly as possible. So I did what I thought was best. Starting in chapter three and continuing through chapter four, God focuses in on the Levites. God had already appointed Moses a Levite as the leader of Israel, and Aaron a Levite as the high priest, and Aaron's sons, Levites, as priests. So, The, okay, so the priests were the ones that were responsible for giving the offering, offerings exactly how, how they were supposed to, exactly, precisely when they were supposed to as well. We were told in Numbers 3-4 that two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, died when they presented unauthorized fire before the Lord. This was just a reminder of what was already disclosed to us in Leviticus. And in Leviticus 10.3, God explained their deaths, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. This verse has always struck me. The priests were the people closest to God. And his standard for them was higher, not lower. Their reflection of him, their obedience to him, it had to be more, not less. They did not get a pass because they were closer to God. Actually, the standard was higher. And I think that's also probably something that teaches us something. Isn't, don't you think that's true for us as well? The closer we get to God, the more we need to regard him as holy. The more we need to glorify him. The priests had a job where they had to be very, very careful in what they did. So God, in his goodness, gave them the Levites to help them with that job. But before the Levites could take on the responsibilities that God was going to give them, an exchange had to take place. And that's why God had these next two censuses. Every single firstborn male, one month old or more, had to be counted. And every single Levite male, one month old or more, had to be counted. Because God, when he freed the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, he had already taken the firstborn males to serve him. And so now, if the Levites were going to take that place, what God essentially does is he gives the firstborn males back and he takes the Levites in their place. I don't know about you, but I found it pretty fascinating, fascinating that God was so exact. I mean, these numbers were pretty close. But technically, the Levites... God had more, and the priests had more uh, firstborn males than they had Levites. And so God required just compensation. Verse 49, so Moses collected the redemption amount from those in excess of the ones redeemed by the Levites. And verse 51, he gave the redemption silver to Aaron and his sons in obedience to the Lord, just as the Lord commanded Moses. 
just as an exchange had to take place for the Levites to serve God. An exchange has to take place for any of us to serve God. Listen to what Titus 2.14 tells us about what Jesus did for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. After the Levite firstborn male exchange took place, God gave the Levites their assignments. The Kohathites were addressed first. Now remember, Moses, Aaron, and his sons were Kohathites. They were Kohathites, but not all Kohathites were priests. So the Kohathites, the closest relatives to Moses, Aaron, and his sons, were going to be responsible for handling the most holy objects. But notice, they were not to touch or even look at them. So when the tabernacle was going to be moved, the priests went in. They covered everything with all those multiple coverings, packaged it, put carrying poles in, so that all the Kohathites had to do was pick up the items without ever touching or looking at them. And God gave Eleazar, Aaron's oldest living son, oversight responsibility. And he said in verse 17, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Do not allow the Kohathite tribal clans to be wiped out from the tribes, from the Levites. Do this so that they may live and not die when they come near the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons are to go in and assign each man his task and transportation duty. The Kohathites would transport the most holy objects, and the Gershonites and Merorites would transport other parts of the tabernacle. So this week's passage sets the stage for the Israelites' journey to the Promised Land. In it, our attention was drawn to the fact that this was going to be a fight. It was a military mission. God had promised things to them, and God was going to deliver, but the Israelites had a part to play. We also saw that God was intimately involved in each and every aspect of the preparations. God set the mission for the Israelites. If God set their mission, why would we think that he's not setting the mission for believers? God was the one that sovereignly placed each and every person where they were going to be. He's the one that assigned roles and responsibilities. If God did that for his people, the Israelites, why would we think that he would not be sovereignly placing, assigning roles and responsibilities to people within the body of Christ? God was practical in his direction to the Israelites. He took into account the roles and responsibilities he had given them and the natural relationships that they already had. If God was practical with them, why wouldn't we expect that he would be practical with us? God expected the Israelites to pay attention to what he said and to carefully obey him. And the standard was higher for those closer to God. If that was true for them, why would that be true for us? Over and over again through this week's passage, we were told that the Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. 
They took all the censuses that God told them to do as tedious as they were. They camped the way God said. They assigned the roles and responsibilities exactly as God said. So I'd say that the Israelites are off to a pretty good start. Before my family set out on our road trip this summer, we went through the tedious process of planning, and that's because it was necessary. Our preparation did not mean that the trip was going to go smoothly. <laughs> it did not. But can you imagine? Can you imagine if we didn't pack anything? Or if we let the kids pick, and by pick I mean fight over, their seat in the car. All this preparation was necessary. And there's still a little bit more preparation necessary before the Israelites actually start the journey toward the promised land. Hopefully you're starting to see and get excited about all the things that the book of Numbers has in store to teach us about our journey with God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We praise your name. We thank you for all the things that you've done for us, for saving us, for revealing yourself to us, for leading us and guiding us that we can count on you that just like all the things that you show us about yourself and your word, we can count on them to be true for us today. We thank you that you have a plan, that we don't have to plan all of these things out. We thank you that you warn us that this life is a journey and it's a fight. Thank you that you are the one that placed us where you want and that you use all the practical things in our lives. Father, I pray that as we study the book of Numbers, Lord, and especially as we move into next week, that you would show each and every one of us just a little bit of how you've placed us, all the practical things that you do for us. And I pray that we would be willing to be the people you want us to be, to do the things you want us to do. Love you and I praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.